0: Welcome to the Profitable Farmer podcast, where it's all about increasing the profitability of your farm by working smarter, not harder.
1: G'day, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Profitable Farmer. This is Jeremy Hutchings. I'm delighted to be uh, taking on this podcast series from Andrew Roberts um, and allow him to have a well-earned rest for the next few months and some time with his one-year-old and beautiful wife, Sunny. Um, So from wherever you are around Australia and overseas, we're delighted to have you listening to us and being part of our podcast series. So thank you. Um, To kick off my contribution to this podcast series, I decided to start in my own backyard and to start close to home. And quite literally, I had my brother, who's between projects at the moment, come up to help me do some running repairs on our homestead. Um, on our farm the other day, and while we're in the backyard and we're up a ladder and pretending to be tradesmen, we were having a meaningful conversation. And I thought, what a great topic for a podcast with our um, farmer listener group. So I've actually invited my brother, Jono, to be with us today. And as I say, he's between projects, which I'll explain in a minute, and he's better at his projects than he is a tradesman. So, Jono, thanks for uh, being online, and welcome to Profitable Farmer.
0: Thank you very much, little brother,
1: <laughs> little better-looking brother. So, um, ladies and gents, I've coined the theme for this podcast: learning from big business, and. Um, Just to introduce my brother, he has um, most recently been involved in three of Australia's largest private equity transactions, and we'll touch on those in a minute. But I think through that, and through a fairly lengthy time as CEO of an emerging company in Geelong, and before that, a management consulting role with a company called LEK, John O's had um, the opportunity to consult to and work with some of the biggest companies in Australia, but also some of the highest performing teams and the thing that I respect most about my brother in and around all of this is that he's stayed grounded and I think the principles that we can dis- we'll discuss today and that we will um, cover off on as it applies to big business, John I'll get your comment on this, for me they absolutely apply um, perhaps even more so um, to running a farm business or a small business no matter who's um, involved as listeners this evening.
0: Yeah, no, that, that's that's exactly true. I, I think that the other way. I think all the um, all the skills that you need to have and the uh, and the focus on cash and and the ability to manage people in small business is what's required in large business. So um, you know, I, I think there's there's a lot that um, some of the major corporates out there could learn from. Um, uh, you know, from from farmers and, and small business owners around the place.
1: Yeah, it's a great comment. There's nowhere to hide in small business, really, is there, compared to big business, perhaps. Is that sort of consistent with what you're alluding to there?
0: Oh, exactly, exactly. You know, when I was running the small business, um, uh, you know, and, and w- was in the thick of it uh, and I had the bank manager knocking on the door and, and I had uh, staff knocking on the door, uh, you know, it, it's 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 real. It's real business, you know. When when you when you're keeping a close eye on on cash and the bank balance, um, and and the productivity of your people really really counts. That's when you know you're alive. Um, And a lot of people in the corporate world uh, could do with that level of uh, discipline. (laughs) If that like.
1: lesson and and absolutely yeah. growing up in small business and in farm business, it's um it's a great grounding to go and um take those principles into bigger business. I remember Jono, my dad and our our dad saying that once you can if you can sail a laser, a little fourteen foot sailing boat, you can sail anything. And I just think that's a wonderful metaphor for business. That if you if you can do it in small business, then those skills. Um, absolutely ratchet up for bigger projects.
0: Yeah, and that, that's exactly what I've found. Um, yeah, and and what I've seen in large corporates is that, uh, you know, and I, I work closely at one stage and, and we'll get to my background, but um, with Nestle, one of the biggest food groups in the world, and those guys just didn't know what their bank balance was. They didn't even know where they had a bank balance. You know, no one was watching cash. And as a result, they just made really poor commercial decisions you know it's hard to believe that any person in sort of managing a business or, or um you know running a profit and loss account you know does, wouldn't focus on on cash but these guys were just so far removed from that and the real world that you know it, it, it was amazing you know, I, I was astounded, I was astounded.
1: Mm, it's so interesting so we're, um, I'm going to suggest that we go about this conversation, Jono, in two parts. One is is just we'll share your background and I'm keen to explore some of the, the key um, leadership lessons and business lessons that you've um, gleaned from some of these projects that you've worked on. All, interestingly enough, ladies and gents in the food and fibre sector. Um, Jono's got an agricultural background, but his last sort of three key projects have all been in. Food, So, hence, um, my interest in having him with us this evening. Now, um, equally, then, I'd like to move into a different spin, perhaps, on the trends that you're seeing in food and fibre and the implications that might have back on um, our farmer audience and our listeners. Because I think you've got a really interesting spin through these projects on on what is trending in industry. and some insight there perhaps to share um, with our farmers no matter what industry they're in, right?
0: Yeah, well, I hope so. I, I'm, I'm definitely comfortable talking to the, the major sort of trends in food and fiber that I've seen. Yep. You know, the implications of, of uh, that for the farmer I think you know, is, is something that we can tease out as we as we go.
1: Cool, great. Now before we get in to this, I think it's only appropriate that we reflect back on our farming background. Um, what's one of the funniest stories you've got of growing up um, on our farm, three boys often doing stupid things, um, terrorising our mother? What are what some of your reflections? What's, what's one of your funniest reflections on growing up on Delroy?
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, that, that's, that's an interesting question. I can't think of any sort of one story that... that um, uh, about you, because really there, there were so many. Uh, Jeremy was was uh, the one on the farm that um, you know had all the broken legs and the bones and and fell off the motorbike and you know drove the tractor through the fence and um, injured himself. You know, if there was sort of broken bones or blood on the blood in the soil, uh, it was generally Jeremy's. And as a result, uh, you know, Trev, who sort of worked on the on the farm with us for 40 years um, called him awful can awful um, because he was always like evil can evil, but a lot, worse and a lot more. <laughs> awful.
1: Yeah, you were certainly more measured than I was, Jono. But I will never forget when yeah. we we're ch- trying to cut rams out of a, a paddock and you were decided whilst chewing your tongue on the back of the ute, standing on one foot trying to get. Um, rocks out of one of your boots to simon just perfectly timing that tight right hand turn and watching you tumble at 70 kilometers an hour just four or five somersaults off into the distance Some um, fond memories of you just getting up just completely dazed and confused but i thought had, i landed pretty well you I did you, I had, you had a boot in one hand and you're rocking the other <laughs> You're standing there in a cloud of dust, dusting yourself off. It was very entertaining, righto? So back down to business. Let's get into this. So, Jono, private equity. A lot of us hear about investment banking and private equity. What is that like? Can you just give me the the layman's example of what it is you've actually yep. been doing for the last couple of years?
0: Yep. So, so I've worked um, with uh, some guys, um, and these guys are. Sort of private equity fund managers go out and, and raise money from um, uh, like big sort of superannuation funds, pension funds, um, you know the the Saudi Arabian royal family, a whole lot of people, and they use that money to invest directly into businesses. So um, they'll the the companies that I work for uh, raise two billion dollars, and with that um, money, they'll go and invest that. On behalf of the people that have provided the money to buy companies directly so the 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 money that they're putting in is basically private money yep um and and that's why it's called private equity and private equity can be can be um uh can be that form or it can just be individuals um using their own money to to go and buy companies and, and manage them directly
1: Great, uh, but that's effectively what it is. Thank you. And what's your mandate, Jono, when you arrive into these companies? And we'll talk about a few of them in a minute. What's what's your mandate as um, part of the, the transformation team?
0: Yeah, sure. So, so obviously, when when the when the fund managers take the money and, and invest in companies, they want to see profit improvement. Um, and in the three uh, private equity uh, owned companies that I've been involved in. Um, they uh the private equity guys have put in a new executive management team so i've gone in with that new executive management team uh, and my job is um to oversee all the projects that deliver the the profitability upside uh, make sure all that's coordinated uh, and then i'll pick up because there's a lot going on during the during this sort of private equity ownership period um, that the management team can't do. So I'll sort of oversee the projects and then I'll pick up whatever else needs to be done. So I've done property deals and I've um, I've actually uh, run um, uh, Ingham's um, chicken processing plants and uh, just done a whole lot of stuff and it's really just stepping up to the plate and doing what needs to be done as part of that executive management team.
1: Yeah, great. It's been Thank a lot you. of fun. Oh, a bit. Um, And we'll get into these projects shortly. What interests me, ladies and gents, is when we're in our business, running our business, it's so hard sometimes to be objective about it. And if you think about what Jono's had the ability or the the privilege of doing is to step in um, with a fresh set of eyes, with a view to drive performance, profitability of business processes, team, and all of those things, it can be really useful um, to get away from your own businesses. Um, and to take that helicopter view and look at it for what it is and to be slightly more objective. And it's easy to say, harder to do. But one way that I have always recommended, and I know Robbo and our team do this as well, is for two days a week, sorry, two days a year minimum to get away from your farm and get away from your business and to sit with those key decision makers and take that helicopter view where you can sort of sit back. And I like that example that you just gave, Jono, of, of stepping in and being really objective about how do we drive performance and profit from the resources that we have. Um, again, first insight for me is, is how how can we do that as farmers? Um, of the businesses that we've been part of for fifteen or twenty years, have you got any insights there on how you would have, how you would suggest to one of your mates who's in agriculture to actually go about being slightly more objective about the performance of their project?
0: Yeah, yeah. So, so um, look, I, I think that's really interesting. And although we've, I've been in some some complex businesses, we keep it really simple, um, and we we basically produce. In each of the um, uh, in each of the, the companies, we produced a chart uh, which had today's profitability over on the, the left hand side, and then we had a little sort of it's called we call it a flying brick, but it's a, it's then a box that sits sort of over and to the right of that first sort of profitability bar that said let's say profitability today is hundred. Um, and we want to get it to be 200, and then we fill in with little blocks where all the upside's going to come from. So it might be we're going to get 20 of the um, the 100 of growth that we're looking for from revenue opportunities, and then we break those down into individual projects, and then we'll have a look at our manufacturing, and we'll say, well, from manufacturing we want to get 30 of, of upside and we'll actually break then say, okay, where's that 30 going to come from? What projects? And then from that process, that one piece of paper that just has today's profitability, future profitability, and all the steps in between, uh, the projects fall out. So then we just get, get a list of projects uh, and then it's my job to, to coordinate um, delivery of those projects uh, and the rest of the 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 rest of the business, if you like, goes about sort of running the day-to-day and, and sort of sustaining the, that baseline profitability.
1: So, John, so, just, just pick the biggest one of these three projects we're about to talk about. What was the revenue line of one of them when you finished? Just pick a number.
0: Uh, so $2.5 billion.
1: $2.5 billion revenue. So, ladies and gents, isn't it interesting that $2.5 billion turnover companies keep strategic planning and goal setting and um, distinctions around profit growth that simple. It is absolutely no different if you're a, a farm on 2,000 acres with a $600,000 revenue looking to drive performance out of your small business. The same principles apply. So, John, um, let's launch in. The three projects that you've um, been part of, uh, uh, three of Australia's largest food and fibre private equity transactions in recent history. So I'm just going to yeah. name all three. There's Peter's Ice Cream, yep, um, separated from Nestle, Ingham's yeah. Chicken and corporatizing Ingham's Chicken and then Allied Pinnacle, um, which maybe people don't know as well, but they are three significant transactions. I'm just going to hand over to you and ask you, if you could, just to give us... Um, the grab, if you like, of what happened, like the, the, what happened with these businesses, and just just go through them all. And ladies and gents, as we go through this, just listen to again the commonality in what Jono has been focusing on with these significant Australian companies, and the relevant relevance of those sorts of things back to you and the decisions that you're navigating now in farm business. Over to you, Jono.
0: Yeah, great. Um, look, I could, I could talk about sort of each of these, um, businesses for hours on end. So if I'm going into too much detail, uh, Jerram, just pull me up. Um, uh, but I'll start with Peters. Peters was a fantastic project. Um, or one, it was a fantastic company, you know, iconic Australian, um, brand known sort of to every sort of child and former child uh, in the country yep. um, and it was owned by Nestle uh, and sort of completely um, intertwined if you like in the in the Nestle business so Nestle decided that they didn't want to own i uh, be in ice cream anymore uh, and that's something that I'll that I'll come back to so yep. they sold the Peters um, manufacturing facility and the brands. Uh, to uh, a private equity fund Um, and my job was to separate sort of carve out sort of unscramble the egg if you like of that Peter's business out of Nestle and sort of make it into a into a standalone business Um, so set up computer systems and and you know accounting systems and accounts payable and accounts receivable and all that sort of thing that, that that you need in a in a standalone sort of business. Um, that that was that was um, that was a fantastic project, uh, and that one that one was successful um, because the Nestle it was like the the ice cream business in Australia was considered by sort of Nestle headquartered in. Switzerland and, and worth sort of $50 mm. billion dollars or €50 billion euros or something like that. You know, this ice cream business was really the, you know, their little business on the arse end of the arse end of their, yeah. of, yep. of, of their um, you know, uh, organisation. Small, so small
1: brand relatively and in a small market relatively. Is that fair? Exactly. And, yeah,
0: and, yeah. Yep. and not only that, they saw ice cream as being low growth Because you know consumers were moving away from ice cream, and they saw it as low margin. Now it's low margin. If any business in the world could have ice cream's margins, they'd be happy. But compared to pet food, um, uh, chocolate, and and coffee, you know where they make 50, 60, 70% gross margins, ice cream was was low. So the new management team came in, and when Nestle had seen a low margin, low growth company what the new management team saw was an uh, underperforming, undermanaged company with really good people in it and solid margins in a market where there'd been no innovation. You know, the only significant innovation in ice cream land um, in sort of the, the 15, 20 years was the release of the Magnum. Now, and everybody loves the Magnum, yeah. but it's not, it's not a great... It's not great ice cream, you know, but that was, that was the only real innovation. So the new management team came in. Um, we sort of reduced the, the cost base just because Nestle had gold-plated everything. We are able to sort of reduce the cost. We also reduced cost, which is really, you'd think a large company like Nestle would buy all of their inputs absolutely sort of bottom cost, bottom dollar, yeah, you know, but no. We we came in and we went to the suppliers of the business, and we're able to say, you know, we're here now. We know what we're doing. We want you to lower costs on this, and every supplier came back to us, sort of repitched for supply yeah, at a yeah. lower cost.
1: John, so, I this great. So, go on. Sorry. Go on.
0: No, no, no. So, so the old adage of you know, sort of being bigger. Means you get sort of volume discounts. Just isn't just isn't right. You get cost savings from focus and knowing what you want and knowing where you can you you can make trade offs in yep. in the the, you know, the the supply. We save a bucket load of money.
1: And again, that. coming back to our listeners, um, this is a big reason why at Farm Owners Academy we want to get you off the low value tasks off the. Um, the fencing rouse abouting low value activities and getting you at your desk focusing on bigger ticket items. And one of the first things that we sort of encourage people to think about is more active Um, and meaningful negotiations with key suppliers. So often, even as a small business owner, we can drive way better margin. And we are all guys, high volume, low margin producers. If we're producing a commodity, we've got to lower our cost base. And so, John, it's really interesting that that's one of the places where you started with Nestle, uh, with Peters, um, in terms of driving margin in what was perceived to be a a low margin game. So well, just only see by Nestle to
0: be low, low yeah, market. Yeah,
1: only the uh, the older a, generation, perhaps. Yeah. So, do you know what's, um, what's some of the impacts that we now see in market um, of um innovating around the product offering that um, is a result yeah. of of I guess your teams.
0: Yeah. So, so so probably the, the yeah the, the the key thing that. Um, uh, from the, the time I was there, uh, was relaunching or launching the Connoisseur on a stick. So Connoisseur was a tub brand. Um, hopefully all of your listeners enjoy Connoisseur from um, from time to time. Um, and the tub was really, really successful um, uh, brand in, in Australia and, and had gone national and, and they'd done quite a good job of that. Yeah. Um, but amongst the pile of ideas that that the marketing team had was this connoisseur-on-a-stick idea. Um, And we looked at that, new management team, not necessarily ice cream background, but we looked at that and said that is an absolute no-brainer. We're just going to put everything behind launching that connoisseur-on-a-stick. And and we did, and it took off. And the interesting thing there was that the Nestle guys, uh, people that had worked in ice cream for all their careers, had that on their list, they could have done it and probably done it sort of reasonably well, but they didn't do it because nowhere in the world had a tub brand been launched successfully on a stick. So we were ignorant of that sort of <laughs> fact. So we, we went for it and, of course, it was it, it, it was hugely um, successful. So um, was
1: there much analysis down that or was that just a trial and error thing You you... you created some piloted it got good feedback and then launched it was it was it that sort of thing or was it a more measured decision process
0: oh there's there's it was more measured than that um to the extent where there was some so the marketing team did some focus groups and trialed some and and spent a lot of time developing the product yep but still got to take the leap um, and you've still got to get the customers on board that the innovation is going to fly because they've got to give you space on the on the shelf in the supermarket, or they you know, in the in the corner store, they've still got to give you, give you um, real the, estate. The, yeah, yeah. The real estate. So, um, but you've you still got to make the leap, and you've got to take the take take the risk. Um, and to the credit of that management team, um, they did, and they got behind it and directed, you know, tens of millions of dollars of marketing. Yeah. Uh, behind it, and and it was, um, and it was a, a success. A
1: success. It's yeah. inter- so interesting to hear, Jono. Can we move on to Ingham's and then Allied Pinnacle? I'm just going to get you the other, because I'd, I'd like, once we've got all of them on the table, um, yeah. just to fire a few questions at you that I think are going to be really interesting for our listeners to, to discuss. Yeah.
0: Do we, have any, do we have any chicken farmers on the um go? yeah.
1: Good, good L- question. Good um, L- thing. I don't. I, well, this podcast is open, and so absolutely, possibly, um, well, in, our, in our client okay. base, we've got egg businesses. Um, we don't have a, a chicken farm as such, but um, yeah. absolutely, this could be um, this could okay. be out well, there then, to to chicken no, farmers. That's, right.
0: that's right. That's right. But they might they may have a different view of, um, of <laughs> what happened um, far uh, away, but uh, but I'll I'll talk through. it. Well, Inghams um, Inghams. Sort of huge family company, uh, you know, a couple of billion of dollars in in revenue, and had been uh, you know, successful over a long period of time. Uh, amazing, amazing company, amazing growth in that company, and and the scale and complexity of it um, is incredible. Uh, the management team that was in place prior to private equity coming in had been in place. Uh, since the late '80s, so the CEO had been CEO since 1987, and most of his management team had been in place since then. So, what's that? Thirty odd years. Yep. Um. And, uh, and that that company really needed to be sort of modernised and, and corporatized and and um, you know, bought into, you know the. The um, new millennium uh, in a number of areas. Um, yep. It was still run as a state-based organisation, uh, where the major customers are all national. So we had a, a, a disconnect with our customer base, um, and and we had a a national company that that was that was state-based, and, and we and Inghams wasn't servicing the customer as well as it it could have been. Ah. So we needed to fix that. Um, it, it was just Sort of old school run, sort of in, in in um sort of on a on a spreadsheet. So we needed to upgrade the IT systems, which were good but but not great. And mostly the the company relied on the CEO, old CEO, who just knew his game just so well. Uh, it was amazing. He was a walking um, machine, computer machine. Like he just knew every part of the chicken. You know that they, they were. Um, They were were killing, still are killing about three and a half million chickens a week Um, and he ran that operation in his head. Uh, It was, you know, he's an incredible man but he was well into his 70s and and getting past it. Um, So just
1: out of of interest, John, with that one, was it identified as a key risk for that business, that dependence on the CEO?
0: Yeah, it was. Yeah, definitely. Yep. Uh, and not only not only the CEO, like it was really tight around the CEO, but even the rest of the management team was sort of getting on. You know, yeah, right. That, yeah. That, they, that they were sort of experienced enough. You know, in in the late '80s to get into executive positions. And then they'd been there for thirty years, yeah, so a lot of them were 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 pushing sort of seventy so not only was that sort of if you like old ideas but they were as you say um you know, risk in in um you know that that whole team retiring and and that sort of thing. So, yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, it's something we might come back to once we've um introduced Allied Pinnacle too. I just find that whole yeah. constructive. Of often, so much of the IP, especially in a small business, is in the heads of the most senior members, um, yes. and how technology can play a part, and focusing on systems can play a part in. Um, assisting mm. that transition from the old to the next gen, the older generation to the next generation. Yep. But, but let's come back to that. Um, and I'm sure there's a lot more in Inghams we can unpack. Let's go on yep. to Allied Pinnacle because I think this might be a brand that um, that our listeners know of even less than the two you've mentioned.
0: Yeah, sure. So so your listeners have probably heard of Allied Mills. Uh, so Allied um, uh, Mills Flour Milling Company uh, was merged with Pinnacle Bakeries. Um mm. so form Allied Pinnacle. So Allied Mills, a uh, flour milling company that had um developed and, and purchased over time some bakery businesses, large scale bakery businesses. Yep. yep and Pinnacle Bakeries was industrial mm. um baker. So, you know, cooking things and cakes, um, sourdough breads, muffins, donuts, yeah, just Response, the, the the pastries, the, the the full spectrum. So the private equity guys bought Allied Mills and they bought Pinnacle Bakeries, and then um, I was brought on board to to put those two companies together to form Allied Pinnacle, and it was really a, a one plus one equals three. So we had two companies of equivalent size. When we put them together, we only needed one head office, one CEO, one sales director. We didn't need two bread manufacturing sites. We only needed one. We didn't need two warehouses in Melbourne and Sydney. We only needed one warehouse in those locations. So there was a lot of cost savings in bringing those two companies together, uh, and that was really the opportunity of, of sort of allied pinnacle of, um, of merging those two companies. And when we did, we produced, or um, well, the, the the result was that that we had a company that is by far the largest. Um, industrial bakery company um, in the country yeah like well, by, by orders of magnitude yep. yeah
1: it's so interesting and and as a, as we're talking, I'm thinking about our listeners and in each of these examples, John o there was you know obviously a fresh and new approach to the same project, but um, innovation, cost cutting, leadership transition from the older generation to the newer generation, a focus yeah. on processes and systems and leveraging technology to affect that leadership transition. And then in the example that you've just given, um, you know, the the merging of two companies in order to create synergies um, between them. I mean, mm. for me, so much of that speaks to, a farming family um, in a tough spot having to think really strategically around innovation, cost cutting, efficiency, systems, leadership transition between generations. Um, I'm seeing so many similarities in the issues that you've had to navigate with the top end of town um, yep. with some of our farming friends who are having the same challenges just at a different level. Is, are you picking up the same? thread here
0: yeah yeah and you know seeing it through that lens yeah and and talking to you, you know, allied pinnacle bringing together sort of two companies of equivalent size is you know very similar to buying the farm next door
1: yeah even yeah. leasing the farm next door but, so that
0: you can, the farm next, you yes, can yes,
1: allo- allocate course. your resources across a greater asset and so john I, I guess just to fire a couple of questions at you on this you yep. you were perhaps fortunate enough to be playing with a relatively budget, so, so such that you could bring in really high caliber people to help you effect this change.
0: Yep. Yeah. So I think that's that's one of the great strengths of private equity. Uh, yep. And in the press, private equity gets a bad rap. Uh, in my experience, there's good private equity and there's bad private equity. But the good private equity guys, what they do really, really well is attract top-flight management, Um, and that's not only through um, uh, you know offering sort of a a decent salary, um, but around private equity, there's all because they're buying companies and then selling companies. There's an opportunity for the management team to get sort of equity and options and kickers um, yeah. on the way through, at, yes. at, um, uh, which can be realised at a, at a sale, which helps attract the best sort of management. But the reason I like working with private equity and my generally my colleagues are, are the same is that there's a mandate for change. So the ownership, the owners of the company want change and expect change. Um and are willing to give the sort of resources and and money that that are required to execute that that change um, which is different to a company that's you know listed on the on the stock exchange because they're they're more if you're listed on the stock exchange it's more about just doing what you did today slightly better to get a slight uplift in profit next year so you get a tweak up in the in the um in the share price for the private equity guys are about change. And and because they are about sort of change and they're bringing a new management team, there's a mandate for change right through the company. And that is not only sort of affects the management team, but everybody's expecting um, change. And, you know, it's amazing the number of people in these organisations that get really excited about
1: that. That is um such a really... Um Interesting way to think about business, um, especially back thinking about small business and farm business. Where, um, and listeners, just just I'd encourage you to ask the question: To what degree does my company and the leadership of of my business and our farm have a mandate for change? Um, and I'm willing to predict that most listeners will be in a business where there isn't that leadership mandate or that mandate coming down from the owners um but you know in the current climate staying the same is not an option and doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result is the definition of insanity and so i love that frame about um having a mandate for change and having owners that want change and expect change. I guess a question for you, Jono, is if our listeners are sitting there and let's say that it's it's dad and the son both listening to this um, mm. and um, wife and daughter-in-law sort of absolutely as well, but a leadership team within a family, how could they go from having um, a mandate for um hanging in there and organic growth at best versus introducing a culture and mandate for change like that that you've experienced how would you suggest small business might be able to achieve that
0: yeah that's a, that's a that's a really interesting um, question because you know in, in the private equity world there's a fundamental change happens when the PE guys come and 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 basically the ownership changes and then the whole management team changes. So the question yeah. really is you've got the same owners and the same managers in place, how do you get that that mindset change to, to happen and then how do you get, um, you know, everybody that, that you say that, that's around the table, you know, ma, pa, you know, the, the, the yep. farming sort of son, um, you know, the family, the sister, yep. the Absolutely. family. But I mean, we, we we we're both part of- farming family <laughs> um, uh yeah how, how do you how do you drive that change and it's 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 a it's you know it's sort of um it's an interesting question i don't know i don't i don't know how you do but that there's got to be there's got to be sort of something that that sort of initiates that yeah 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 change and and it's probably a common vision for the for uh where you want the um the organization to go because you know going back to my hundred my earlier example if you're currently doing a hundred and you want to get to two hundred, you won't do that by doing the same thing you're doing to today. You, know, yeah. you you do that by working out where you can make change and where you can create sort of profit or or value and breaking that down into projects and then saying, okay, which project are we going to yeah. do first? And which one are we going to do second? And how hard do we think we can go at them based on the resources that, that we have, yep. and then just start driving for them. Yep. that that sort of breakdown of, of of sort of breaking down the improvements that you want to get into a set of sort of more defined projects, yeah. And then just executing the projects, you know, is is a is a good way to get sort of focus on the on the sort of execution level.
1: A- absolutely. Um, I guess just thinking about this a little further. I mean, what private equity imposes on the company really is a deadline and an impending event be it a sale or a merge or something else it creates a meaningful deadline and growth is required by a deadline and um, I guess just a shout out for Farm Owners Academy and, and for the listeners on the line that are part of our program I think you'll get this but um, two of our programs, one is take control, which is all about understanding your numbers, the resources you have available, um, an objective assessment of your current business, and then really going out and a lot of business owners in you know, farming businesses don 't have that really clear vision of what they 're shooting for that ten year goal, the three-year goal, and then chunking that down into bite-sized projects, as Jono has described, so that you've got a leadership t- team that is aligned to um, a long-term strategic imperative or objective. Um, so I think that's critical, Jono, to your point. And what might need to happen just to amplify that is real dissatisfaction with the current position. Some people get so comfortable in their current position that they accept less than average results. And so sometimes it's important as leaders, ladies and gents, to go, you know, we are no longer going to tolerate the results we've been getting. We're going to come together. We're going to sit together. We're going to write long-term visions, 10-year objectives, and focus intently on those. Um, And I think that might be how we can inspire a mandate for change. And meaningful growth within our farm businesses regionally, um, John. I have you got anything to add to that before we move on?
0: Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm just sort of reflecting on that. Um, you know, b- building that sort of common vision and and um, sort of that, that sort of mandate for change amongst a, a family group. Quite often, there's there's uh, you know, if you like, family members that are operational and those that aren't operational. Um, yeah, yep. and in my experience, the operational people that see the opportunity more clearly um, are the ones that are probably driving harder for change, and the non-operational, um, uh, non-operational sort of leaders of the the sort of farming situation can be a bit more conservative. And it's up to the operational leaders to actually build credibility about um, executing. Um, and delivering the results uh, of you know um, uh, of, of sort of change projects yeah so which which is always top of mind for new management teams when they come into to private equity with their you know we, we've got to build sort of credibility on being able to execute uh, so potentially one way to sort of is to get into sort of change incrementally. You know, okay, this is what we're doing. This is our first project. The operational team is 100% behind it. We're going to deliver this really, really sort of smoothly. And by doing that, we're going to deliver the upside and we're going to build credibility with the non-operational sort of team so that they'll then trust us to do next year to do two major projects. And yep. then the year after that to do three or four major projects. Yep. Um, so, you know, it, it's that 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 sort of credibility and execution is really important um, build, as build, part of sort of building. Building, um, it, um,
1: building it over time. Um, yep. Yeah, brilliant. Thank you. Really interesting insights. And it's it's really um, intriguing to apply this back into farming family situations. John, o just reflecting on those three projects that you've been part of and all the other ones that we haven't touched on with management consulting, um, mm. you've been part of some really high-performance teams and you've attracted really high, like high the best talent. Mm. How do you reckon those projects would have gone with average investment in less than excellent people? Um, I guess, that, that, guess what I'm, I'm, I'm just wanting to explore so many farming families find it hard to get and attract high caliber talent um, and in my experience either because we have no we suck at recruiting or we're good at recruiting and we just can't find the people we find them and then we won't invest in them so there's a whole lot of reasons why we don't end up with the best talent but at the top end of town just speak to me if you could about average versus the best talent and the difference in terms of outcomes. Yeah, probably.
0: Yeah, there's one particular sort of project that I'm thinking of where we were um, uh, we were combining warehouses, um, and the the project was being led by um, the the sort of executive heading up that area, um, and he um, he knew his business, but you know he, he was. It was good, but not really good, yep. um, and 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 far from great. And that project went pear-shaped, and as a result of the project going pear-shaped, we couldn't deliver to our customers for a period of time. Big problem, yeah, that, that, which is a big problem when when um, when you're in the business of delivering daily uh, to Woolies and Coles and and these places. So the difference between good people like or great people doing great execution and good people doing average execution is, is sort of black and white. Like, you know, it, it's, it's absolute um, uh, absolutely sort of, you know, night, night and day. So getting, getting good people and, and everybody knows that you know, business is about two things. It's about people and it's about cash and, you know, you know, you, you, you've got to have you've got to have the right people, and and not only that, you've got to be willing to sort of one invest in your people, two have hard conversations with your people so that they improve, and three be willing to you know pull the trigger on them if they don't improve after you've had the hard conversations, because you know when you. When your business relies on those those people, you know you just can't afford to have average performers stick around. Um, and I think that's that's another thing that the private equity guys do really, really well is um, is just get the right people on board right through the organization. and generally, you know some because private equity is it's a period of rapid change, there's a third of people who are super, super excited about it, there's a third of people who are sitting on the on the fence and there's a third of people that just want to get out. Yep. And, you know, you release those people from your organisation, which allows you to get better people in, and it's a win-win because those people are happier. Yep. And the people you get in, hopefully better, Yep. Which improves the the organisation, so it's yep. better for those people. It's better for the the organisation, um. But you know, the, where, where I've been involved, we're just super generous with the with the people. You know, if you've hired somebody and you've invested in them and you've had the conversations and they don't work out, you know, in my experience, just be super generous with them. You know, if that means you you you're only obliged to pay them. Four weeks leave, or four weeks sort of termination. Pay them six, pay them eight. You know, keep them, give them sort of warning. Keep them on the books for sort of sowing or for harvest. Help them find them their next. Yeah. Help them. Help them find their next thing, but but sort of move them on in a generous way.
1: And so, John, that's with people who you've had the tough conversation with, and you've agreed to let go. Um, mm. I guess. My bias here, ladies and gents, and just to emphasise what John is saying, is um, our people are such a critical asset, especially in farming businesses and regional small businesses. Um, I want to encourage you when you're next recruiting and we encourage each of you to recruit. At Farm Owners Academy, um, we believe in creating the Freedom Farm where you – achieve a profitable farm business that is structured and systemized and resourced through people such that it can work without you, so that you can take that three-month holiday or you can step away and have a break um, or focus on your next business project or investing off-farm or focusing on um, doing the work of a CEO um, rather than the work of a farm operator. Um, and in order to do that, we've got to be become good at recruiting, good at onboarding, good at having the tough conversations, um, and good at then mentoring and leading and coaching high-caliber people. And so I just want to encourage people out there who are looking at recruiting as a, um, on the back of listening to this webinar to go after the very best, invest in the very best, because it will always pay dividends. I think it's a great comment, Jono. Thank you. So just while we're on the management conversation, John, and before we move on to some of the trends you're seeing um, out there in the food and fibre sector, one more question around people and management is in order to inspire significant change in a company, you must have come up against significant amounts of resistance to change in the existing teams that you come on board to lead. Um I'm interested for you to share with me, if you could, what are some of the ways that you help overcome their resistance given that you're coming in with that mandate for significant change? How do you, how do you achieve that with people who I'd imagine in Ingham's and Allied Pinnacle who might have been with the company, um, let's say, in a middle management role for, for 20, 30, 40 years? How do, you, how do you overcome their resistance to what you're proposing?
0: Yeah, yeah. It's a really interesting sort of question, um, and I take a very straightforward uh, approach, um, which I think of as sort of being human. Um, look, I, it, it's. I think you've. I think you've got to expect resistance to change, especially with people um, who are just just come to work. They want to start at eight thirty in the morning, do their job. Finish at four thirty in the afternoon and and go home um, and and they've been doing that and they've been doing the same thing for twenty years. Of course, they're going to be resistant to to change. Um, and what I find works best is just t- to be open with those people um, and you know, treat them like human beings, empathise with them because. You know, you, you know, change is, is difficult. It's difficult for, for anybody, you know. We're yep. all resistant to change just, you know, at some point, you know, it's just the context of the of the situation yep. um, where we might be sort of more resistant or, or less resistant. Um, you know, and And just be sort of very clear on why the change has to happen. And people, if you're honest with people and you're open and you're clear, People may not agree with the reason why you're making the change but they'll understand what your reasons are for, yeah, for point. making the, making the, the change um, and then they'll sort of decide whether they're on board or they're not on board. And if they decide not to be on board, that just goes back to the previous conversation, be super generous with them. You know, and, and and that sort of that all comes under the umbrella of just sort of treating people you know with with sort of decency and 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 respect um, and um, you know and 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 being open yeah.
1: it's a great comment I really like that distinction that even if someone doesn't agree with or buy into the why of the change that mm-hmm. they might still be okay with that and come along just because they understand it um, I think there's a Simon Sinek crypt, um, clip, YouTube clip that a lot of us might have listened to, um, start with why. It speaks to that. But I really mm. like that point that if you sit with people and be human, they don't even have, they don't necessarily have to agree with your why um, in order to be motivated enough to stay around. I like, yeah. I like that concept that there's only a requirement for leadership where there is uncertainty. Um, And so it's about making that courageous step, isn't it, really? And then, um, yeah, communicating really authentically and and openly with the people that you need to um, inspire to come for the ride with you. Yeah, great.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: Really interesting insights, Jono. Thank you. Now, um, just in the last five or six minutes that we have, There's a whole other conversation here that I want to touch on. Um, You have seen and been exposed to some of the um, best intelligence, I reckon, on the major trends and implications or major trends in food and fibre and perhaps some of the implications back on Mm -hmm. agriculture. We might reconvene for another more in-depth podcast on this um, rather than rush it too much now, but a couple of the food trends that really jump out for me that I, I wouldn't mind touching on with you, um, you've you've flagged a couple here for me. One is provenance. Um, the other one is health and well-being, um, and linked to that, those two perhaps is animal welfare. Um, yeah. Can I just get you to give? Me and our listeners, your assessment of what you're seeing there by way of food trends. Um, yep. I challenge you to to pair it back um, at the end to um, some some useful insights for farming families.
0: Yeah, sure, sure. So, like th- through the three uh, food organisations I've been involved with, you know, the, the some of the key sort of trends are uh, health and well-being. Uh, some. Jeremy just mentioned provenance, um, and then especially Ingham's animal welfare. Mm. I might just start with um, uh, health and well-being. Uh, yeah, yeah. We, we all know we all know that um, more and more people are focused on sort of the the sort of ingredients of uh, food products and the impact that will have on the body. Yeah, and whatever it is, it, it, it changes based on the latest report. You know, red wine is good for you one day and, it, <laughs> and it's killing you the next day. Yeah. Um, but the, the health and wellbeing, like the, 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 the sort of ingredients, if you like, or the, or the sort of impacts on the body still being understood, but people or are, are, well, the consumers are really focused on it. Um, and because there's a, a lack of sort of knowledge out there around health and wellbeing, there's the opportunity to just draw out attributes of health of your product to make it appeal to consumers. So, for instance, um, yeah, Allied Pinnacles producing desserts, but they go they they produce a flourless um, cake. Yeah. that's around health and well-being. Yeah. Because. It's flourless; it doesn't have wheat and, and um, gluten in it. Just yep. picking up on that trend, so that people can, you know, parents can go and buy a, a flourless cake for their kids. Um, so health and health and well being, really, that that trend. I think for sort of farmers who are producing um, products, or or for the industry more broadly, it's yep. about understanding what the trend are, but it's also about identifying the attributes of a product that can be sold to the consumer um, as a sort of health improvement um, opportunity.
1: And I think now with margin squeeze, as significant as we're seeing it um, as commodity producers, if we innovate and we think outside the box a bit, it's actually we're in a time where it's never been more possible um, to carve a niche out. And I think of some farming friends of ours just out to the west of Wagga here near Lockhart and Galore, John O'Hua, um growing spelt and buckwheat under centre pivots and marketing that directly. Um, and they've gone from being um, commodity producers of conventional um, wheats and canolas, and they've absolutely um, pivoted to focus in on a niche there and are marketing their produce at a premium into some really high, really useful um, niches, sort of Sydney, yeah. Melbourne and surround. So um, absolutely, absolutely critical trend and I think there's more appetite for that now than I'm going to say 15 or 20 years ago. Would you agree?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And... Um, and that sort of leads into sort of provenance as well, which yep. is the consumer wants to know where their food's coming from. Um, so we see this, we see this everywhere. Like the Biardas, Biardas, so Inghams, um, yep. Uh, opposition yep. have started putting the face of their chicken farmers on their packaging. Yep. Um, uh, you know, my, my family buys um, milk that we that comes in a glass bottle from. The local sort of dairy uh, farming family or, or cooperative, you yep. know exactly where it comes from. It's unpasteurized uh, and, and 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 we we love it. Uh, we're getting the we're getting the sort of that inch of cream on the top of our, uh, <laughs>
1: oh, that. That uh, takes that takes me back. That's gold. It's so good. <laughs> With, without one. having to milk it yourself, Jono, that's wonderful. <laughs> um, um, yeah, that's and, great and, examples. Of
0: that is, is really um, is a real opportunity, I think, for smaller producers to get out there and um, uh, and market their their sort of product, sort of either directly to consumers or market sort of themselves through the through the major manufacturers and retailers yep. to consumers and being part of the overall sort of marketing package
1: be the face of the brand for what it is you produce perhaps yeah. either as you say either directly B to C to your consumers or to um your buyers and yeah. um creating a point of difference for yourself that way because,
0: because you know farmers farmers the consumer trusts the trusts the farmer more than they trust the the big manufacturer like liking them so there's an opportunity there for for sort of if you like sort of almost branding the, the, the individual, um, wow. which is a great yep. opportunity. Yep. Um, so that, that, that links into animal welfare. Like the consumer wants to know where their food's coming from. They also want to know that, they're, that the meat that they're eating, especially the meat, is um, coming from an animal that's been well-treated and humanely killed, um, which is which I think sort of a great sort of opportunity once again, to differentiate um, uh, sort of product, um, where you can demonstrate that you do look after your animal and the animal does have a good life. It's not in a cage or yep. Yep. Um, you know confined in a in a tight shed for its life, or it's not a um, uh, uh, you know it it it, it yeah. sort of has sort of you know the opportunity to 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 skip through the strawberry builds um, and then when it is killed it's killed um, and, and butchered in a humane way
1: John beforehand and then when we were in that garden the other day pretending to be tradesmen we talked about the barbell kind of principle that yes. that that you've got to be at one end of the barbell and and at one end you're a mass but well, you're a large-scale producer producing incredibly efficiently at a low cost low margin high volume so kind of stuff and at the other end of the barbell if i understand this principle correctly it's about being boutique and really going after the perhaps lower volume higher margin product which is where provenance and storytelling comes in and direct marketing a different niche in a nation a different story um yeah. the barbell theory sort of suggests don't be in the middle is that correct
0: yeah yeah yeah. That, that, they actually call it the you know barbelling um which is the move either to be sort of at the premium end, um, or at the at the low cost end, well, and if you're stuck man. in the middle, yep. if, you're, if you're in the middle, you're in you're in no man's land. And which sort of which which brings us to like if you think of Peter's ice cream. Yep. Peter's does the the sort of four liter tub of ice cream and 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 larger, which is just bulk standard ice cream, which they've got to churn out and do as cheap as they possibly can, Yeah. or they're doing at the other end, Drumstick, Connoisseur, maxi bond, sort of all these sort of high-end, high quality high brands, yep. and there's nothing that, that it, even in their sort of product mix that sits in the middle. And I think that's, you know, you, you can think of a company's product going that way, you can also think of the whole sort of industry going that, yeah, that way yep. in agriculture or, or elsewhere where you're either at the low-cost end and you're a bulk commodity producer or you've got to move to be sort of more boutique and have something that differentiates you.
1: Um, yeah, great, great. Joe, really useful insights. There's a whole lot more we could focus in on around food trends and implications for our listeners. Um I'm going to try and wrap up all that we've uh, spoken about in a a coherent and well-orchestrated summary in a minute. Just before I do, (laughs) ladies and gents, I just want to um, give a shout-out to um, the Farm Owners Academy. Um, We're delighted that as we uh, launch this podcast that we've got 190 or 200 farmers coming to um, one of our events in February in Adelaide. We're really excited about that two-day event where we overview all that the Farm Owners Academy um, mentors and coaches our clients around in order to help them drive their business to the next level and apply some of the professional rigor that John O's kind of shared with us that is being applied at the big end of town. Um, If these events interest you, we're going to be running a second one in June and a third one in. September in Melbourne and Sydney, respectively, and we'd love for you guys to get involved with that. So jump onto farmownersacademy.com forward slash events, find um, about it these out about these events, um, and also have a look at, at um, our Take Control program that I mentioned earlier if you'd like to get underway with um, applying some of these leadership principles and business principles to the farm business that you have um, so, John, wonderful to have some time formally with you um, and to, I guess, unpack some of the um, genuine big business um, projects that you've been focusing on. It just interests me so much in coming back to that analogy of when you can sail a laser, you can sail anything. Um, so many of the principles we've talked about relate back to um, affecting meaningful change and driving mm-hmm performance thoughtfully and strategically um, within small proactive teams. Um, it's hard to capture everything we've talked about, but um, I might even hand over to you as you reflect on what we've touched on um, relating to cost-cutting, innovation systems, technology enabling, um, management transition, um, and then affecting change where there's resistance. We've talked about some of the major food trends. Um, If you had one or two reflections of your management journey to date, um, two questions. One is, what are you most proud of? And secondly, what is the one tip you would give to a 15-year younger you? Um, if you could have that conversation with him. So firstly, what are you most proud of about your last sort of decade in private equity? First question.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. What I'm most proud of is just taking some really good organisations and making them better. Uh, and you know, each of these organisations that I've been involved with, we've sort of come into them with... Um, if you like, being the custodian to those organizations for a period of time um and when we when we sort of got them, they were sort of doing well, but they had challenges you know when we sort of passed them on, if you like to the next management team, they were doing much better, and they had fewer challenges and I think that that 's sort of you know that sort of each of, like, that, that sort of positiveness coming from our sort of period of, of looking after those organisations is, is the thing that I'm most proud of.
1: Thank you, mate. And, and last question, what, what advice would you give to a 15-year a younger self um, that yeah. next generation young farmer coming through trying to navigate business decision-making and leadership?
0: Yeah. Um, uh, firstly, sort of... Have a very clear idea of of where you want to go, very simple and very clear idea of of what you want to go that you can um, express to people in one or two sentences um, and then focus on going after it and on the way through be open and generous with everybody that you deal with.
1: Wonderful. Jono, it has, as always, been wonderful to have some time with you. Um, I'm going to hit you up for another one of these in nine months' time where we can perhaps go a little bit deeper on the food trends conversation. Um, It's been wonderful to watch your journey over the last decade, Jono, as you sort of launched into these transformational projects of some of Australia's biggest and most iconic brands um a real credit to you and thank you for sharing your experiences and um your insights um with our farming community and our listeners here at profitable farmer
0: yeah thanks jeremy you know it's it's been a it's been a pleasure i love the agriculture industry and it's it's an honor to help in any small way i can
1: yeah thank you mate Um, i get that and Um, to our listeners out there, um, as we navigate, I guess, a dry season and an early harvest and some big decisions, I wish you well, um, and, um, be kind to each other as you navigate some of the stresses of, of a tough season and all the best over the next month or two as you, um, launch into, um, the end of a a season and, um, setting up for a a Christmas and a well-earned break. Thanks for your involvement. Again, Jono, thanks, ladies and gents, and bye for now.